good evening. Uh, we, we've moved into the uh, evening at this point. <laughs> it's been a long day. It's really losing track of time here. Uh, it is currently 6.30 p.m. in Washington, D.C. It has been another beautiful day. Uh, 70s, sunny, great weather. The uh, the cherry blossoms are still out. However, those should be going away in the next couple of days, unfortunately. We're, we're past peak bloom at this point. Uh, but the, the tidal basin, I took a drive downtown a couple of days ago. It was beautiful. Um, what's uh, what's up with you, Nick? Uh, in my neck of the woods, it is rainy, cloudy, muggy. Like, it's hard to sleep <laughs> because it's so muggy. Um, yeah, that's that's a... Uh, it was nice a few days ago, but man, it's just been unbearably humid uh, here in Wisconsin. Well, there you go. Speaking of not nice things, do you want to let the audience know what the discussion is today? Yeah, so war is never a nice thing. Uh, and today we will, we will be discussing another war, uh, the one currently taking place in eastern Ukraine, uh, because there has been... Uh, what would you call it, Casey? Rumblings or rumors of 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 rumblings? Uh, a massing of troops, maybe, yeah, I, is I, a more direct way to put it. Uh, I would say on, it's a, a build up, the Russian, Russian uh, border redistribution of units. Um, certainly, amassing is an accurate uh, description of it. Um, so that, yeah, that, that's what's going on. That there is about 25,000 to 30,000 Russian troops uh, in Donbass, in Crimea, uh, in Russia. But before we get to the current uh, situations, do you want to give a quick overview of how Ukraine and Russia ended up where they are today. at war with each other? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, Russia's Russia's real good at playing that. Uh, we can talk about what qualifies they they at war versus what qualifies as a proxy war. Yeah, uh, kind of this kind of bridges that this situation kind of bridges that gap uh, and has for the past uh, seven years. Uh, so the Russian Ukrainian history is a long one. Uh, um, and partly the background of this would take us much further beyond 2013. Uh, but if we're looking at the immediate context, uh, in 2013, uh, Ukraine, uh, who the current president was Victor uh, Yanukovych. Yanukovych, that's, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, he was going to sign a free trade agreement with the EU, which Russia, of course, did not like. And Russia, alternatively, wanted to give Ukraine membership in the EEU, which is its version of the e of the European Union, the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, Yanukovych oscillated back and forth between this. Uh, it was widely known that he was friendly with the Kremlin. So ultimately, it wasn't a surprise when he decided that he would not pursue the free trade agreement with Ukraine, which was widely popular among the Ukrainian populace. And that led to protests in the Maidan for in late 2013. And over time, as those protests grew, uh, it escalated 
uh, until the uh, Maidan, the shooting at the shootings at the Maidan uh, in February 2014, uh, where about 100 people were killed. Um, protesters, several police officers. Um, it was a bloody incident. Um, it ultimately ended with Yanukovych uh, quite literally fleeing to Russia. Um, parliament taking over as, a, as an interim uh, governing body in the meantime before a new election could be scheduled. And uh, in the process, uh, Russia seized the opportunity uh, and in, in late February, early March of 2014, there were lots of images of, had these, they were called little green men um, who were, you know, walking into Crimea uh, and Russia was saying, this isn't us. This is a, you know, a, a local grassroots uh, rebellion of ethnic Russians. Uh, and slowly but surely, we, we also saw the same thing play out, not just in Crimea, but in the provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk. And uh, eventually in March, there was a referendum where uh, the Crimeans voted to uh, leave Ukraine, secede Ukraine and join Russia. Uh, and that referendum was marred by many allegations of uh, fraud and intimidation. Um, Might I uh, jump in here and add absolutely. that? Uh... And basically the, the war in Donbass has been going on concurrently parallel to that as well. Uh, and there's been several peace agreements, but none of them have held. Um, and essentially, it's been a frozen conflict on and off fighting for the past seven years. Mm -hmm. The For context, the term uh, little green men has become popular in certain foreign policy circles. Uh, little green men referring to, uh, you know, Russian, specifically Russian in this context, although... Um, just any conflict where you have international actors who don't wish to be identified. So you had Russian uh, special forces going into Crimea, Donbass, and Luhansk with uh, <laughs> duct tape taped over their uh, their Russian flags. Which is against international law, by the way. You have to identify yourself in a, in a, as, as a combatant if you are a combatant. Well, Russia would tell you they're volunteers and they weren't part of, of the Russian of military. Course, right. Uh, but yes, that, that is correct. It is a violation of international law not to identify yourself as a combatant, but it's also a violation of international law to invade a sovereign nation. So, Two birds with one stone. They're getting a lot of birds with one stone, um, depending on if the ICC ever goes through the history of things that have gone there. But that is outside the scope of this, uh, this podcast. Yeah. I'm... Yeah, so... Uh, and little green men are potentially back uh, with Russian forces coming back into Donbass and Luhansk, um, at least if uh, operational intelligence uh, nonprofits are to be believed. Yes. Uh, so we, Casey and I, have been following uh, the, what are they called? The 
conflict intelligence team uh, who are actually based out of Russia. Um, and they have been doing a lot of open analysis of, I mean, we've been seeing a lot of these videos lately of humongous convoys of tanks, uh, troop carriers, um, and being either driven on roads, uh, highways, uh, or, or, or railways. Um, and, uh, essentially, uh, we have a minimum, uh, judging by the amount of, uh, brigades and, uh, battalions that have been amassing, uh, on tip, mostly in the Rostov and, without getting too specific, the Voronez region of Russia, which is near Ukraine, essentially, is what you need to understand. Um, we have a minimum of about 30,000 ballpark figure uh, of uh, Russian troops that have amassed. Uh, interestingly enough, not all of them, some of them are actually from very far away. Uh, some of them are from the central military district of Russia, so Russia has several military districts, just like we do here in the United States. You know, they have an Eastern, a Southern, a Central, and I believe a Western. I have a Western military district. That's the main one that uh, opposes NATO uh, forces on the uh, Eastern flank of NATO. Right. So we're seeing troops being moved from the Central military district, uh, which includes parts of Siberia even troops as far away as uh, Siberia, which is kind of significant. Um, because you'd think like, well, if this is just an, an exercise, which happens, every, you know, occasionally uh, fall, uh, Zapad, the Zapad exercises, um, you know, Zapad 2021 is coming up this fall. Um, you'd think if they were just for exercises, would you really need to mobilize people from the central military district? Uh, common sense would tell you no. Um, so we're kind of looking at this, uh, and as we said in the beginning, uh, it's kind of an amassing of troops, and there's several theories on what this could mean uh, in Ukraine, for, for Ukraine, and also the wider relations with the United States. Uh, the first theory, and there's, so you have, you have the local politics, which is, you know, Ukrainians and Russians, you have the geopolitics, which is Russia's need to keep Crimea functioning. So that kind of takes us to the Dnieper waterway, which is Ukraine shut off uh, to Crimea. Uh, and the only way Russia could keep its Russian-speaking population happy in Crimea is to take the Dnieper. And essentially, the, so we have, the we have the geopolitical element of this. And then I would say there's the great power relation to this uh, as well. And some people are saying maybe none of this is actually going to happen. And what we're seeing is just uh, the Kremlin uh, testing Joe Biden, who, you know, to that point is the newly elected president of the United States. So it would make sense for a new president, for the Russians to test a new president. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of several theories, angles going on uh, around what, what this all could mean. Yeah, one of the... My preferred method of analysis is thinking about what motivations are. So Ukraine is going on a pretty strong pro-Western bent. Not that they 
haven't since uh, the uprising against Yanukovych and the winter on fire. But Zelensky, who faces IMF austerity measures, um, he recently increased the cost of utilities on Ukrainian citizens, which uh, made them upset. Uh, there's also continuing to be uh, a cycle of uh, corruption and endemic oligarchs in Ukraine that the uh, people of Ukraine continue to be accept- upset about, justifiably so. So he's leading a legal campaign against them and basically tying a stake with the West and with NATO, which Russia, who seeks to maintain control over Ukraine uh, through putting pressure on them uh, through Luhansk, Donbass, Crimea, Uh, obviously wants to maintain that pressure, right? So if Russia is able to create a frozen conflict uh, in eastern Ukraine, similar to what we see in uh, South Ossetia, Abkhazia. Transnistria in Moldova, right? Absolutely. Uh, Then uh, Russia makes it more difficult for Ukraine to join NATO and to move on from it and advance to the West which uh, actually kind of gets into an interesting discussion. Uh, so yeah, NATO is back in this, in, back in the podcast. Uh, and we can't escape them. Here we are, uh, the, the, the team of 30. Uh, and um, the Ukrainian president had some interesting things to say about this. Uh, it's pretty clear the Ukrainian position here. Uh, it was under Poroshenko. Uh, the previous president, and now it's looking like incredibly so under Zelensky uh, is that they want to join NATO. Uh, Zelensky made, uh, he actually met, I believe, with the Secretary General of NATO. Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, and he said essentially that the only way to end the conflict in Donbass is to is by having Ukraine join NATO. Um. So we're kind of in this position where uh, in Russia's, I mean, uh, one of the motivations that people gave at the time when the war in Donbass started and Russia annexed Crimea after the winter on fire in Ukraine was that NATO's expansion meant that Russia had to get influence in supposedly so-called neutral countries while it still could, right? Well, the irony of this is it's actually Russia's invasion, and this can also be seen in Moldova, and this can also be seen in Georgia, has actually pushed those so-called neutral countries to become more pro-NATO, which so in a way, it's an interesting uh, catch-22. Well, I mean, I, I think that makes sense. It does. Absolutely. Russia, it's completely, <laughs> it's completely Ru- expected. Yes, Russia seems like it has the arc of history against it. Um, certainly, its reliance on fossil fuels isn't helpful. Um, corruption, uh, stagnant economy, uh, authoritarianism. We, we haven't even mentioned uh, the Alexei Navalny situation, which has put Putin under significant pressure. Uh, he's currently going, undergoing a hunger strike. Uh, it's unclear just how bad his health situation is, but he is losing uh, a kilogram a day, uh, is what his doctors and lawyers are saying, Jeez. and has minimal uh, operation of his uh, legs and arms. So his, his health is in a terrible position. Uh, if he gets us, sorry, if, I'm going to interrupt. Um, that kind of gets us to like the fourth theory of what's going on here, which is that Putin needs a distraction 
<laughs> um, yes. And Ukraine is obviously a perfect place to do that. Especially if... Uh, so Ru- the Russian people have watched their you know, per capita GDP um, wages uh, stagnate. And the appetite for international intervention is decreased. Uh, there was a lot there was nationalism in Russia circa 2014. That enthusiasm has waned. Uh, Crimea is an expensive project, the, the military aspect of it even more so. Uh, obviously sending soldiers home in body bags is fun for no one. And Putin can't just create himself a conflict. Uh, especially if he were to ignite uh, a hot conflict in eastern Ukraine as uh, a risk of you know further Western sanctions, Nord Stream 2 being canceled, which Russia really needs that um, added revenue from Germany. Uh, but if he could get Zelensky to jump uh, through this ag- aggressive posturing and create a situation where he needs to send Russian peacekeepers into Donbass and Luhansk, uh, peacekeepers, of course, being a relative term, but uh, similar to he could, he could consider even restoring uh, Donbass and Luhansk to its uh, previous borders from 2014. The, the Ukrainian army, to their credit, has pushed um, those rest of regions back. Um, there was an interesting article um, today from Reuters where the, the Russian presidential administration gave a quote. Uh, so Dmitry Kozak, who is the uh, deputy head of the Russian uh, Russian presidential administration, said, uh, it all depends on the scale of the fire. If there is, as our president said, Srebrenica apparently will have to step in to defend them. Uh, so Srebrenica obviously was the, uh, the uh, ethnic massacre. Some would even call it an act of genocide that was occurred in the Yugoslav Wars uh, in the 19... 19- in the 1990s, uh, committed by the Serbs against the Bosniak Muslims. Um, so in a way, and this kind of takes us back to 2014, right? You can see why people are starting to get nervous or starting to feel like we've been down this road before, because one of the reasons, <laughs> one of the justifications Russia gave in 2014 for annexing Crimea and sending its own forces into Luhansk and Donetsk was because it said ethnic Russian speakers were under attack, right? And here we see the same kind of rhetoric again of if it becomes an ethnic killing field, we'll have to intervene, right? So you can kind of see why people are sounding the alarms again of saying this is the same type of thing uh, we saw seven years ago and it seems like uh, you, you can see why some people think the war drums are beating again. Sure. I mean, it's it's a very highly provocative action. There's when it's you ramp, ramp up the tensions in the region, there's always the risk of uh, miscalculation. And it, it should be clear that we note who's responsible for this. It, it is Russia intentionally choosing to dest- uh, deploy their military units in a manner uh, that is unacceptable, uh, raises the the risks of violence. And frankly, that's probably what Putin's looking for. He's looking to see if he can, uh, e- even if there's no hot conflict, 
if he can just make Ukrainians feel uneasy and, and breathe down their necks and say, I, I have this capacity too. Look at, look at how many soldiers we have here. And tw- 20 battalions is a lot of battalions. Uh, it should be pointed out to uh, Belarus's position in all this. Uh, there obviously were the Minsk agreements uh, that were signed between Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany. France and Germany obviously being two main powers in the EU who are trying to mediate between this. Um, and those were, of course, signed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus. All of those accords have fallen through, <laughs> uh, as one would usually expect, uh, because there's mainly one side in this that's not negotiating in good faith. Um, and uh, we're also, some of the videos that I've been seeing uh, here, which have been confirmed by satellite uh, satellite locationing, uh, what would you call OSINT? All right, let, let, let's fix that and say satellite imagery. <laughs> but yes. Um, we're showing Russian troops amassing in uh, towns in Belarus along the Belarusian, Belarusian-Ukrainian border. So that's in northern Ukraine. Uh, that hasn't been getting too much attention here either. Uh, that's kind of like, I feel like that's kind of a side dish to obviously the, what we're seeing the main entree in, um, you know, like Rostov, uh, Voronezh. Uh, that's something to keep in mind here too, in that uh, th- there's definitely, once again, you can see why people are afraid that this is something wider Absolutely. It's, it's one thing for us to, you know, sit in the United States and say, well, look at the, look at the facts on the ground. It's April. Uh, Eastern Ukraine is still muddy. Uh, it would be cool. terrible conditions to launch an invasion in. There's strong geopolitical considerations to push Russia against incredibly aggressive action. The Department of Defense at this point has given Ukraine a billion dollars worth of military assistance. Uh, including Javelin anti-tank launchers. Uh, on March 1st, they cleared another $125 million aid package, which includes uh, 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 focusing on countermeasures against uh, radar, um, operational capacity, uh, increasing lethality of Ukraine's armed forces. That U- Ukraine no longer has the uh, degraded military from 2014. At, at this point, the military is battle-hardened and uh, professional, but like like you said, there's still been that ongoing conflict. There's still sniper fire. There's still mortar fire. U- Ukrainian soldiers are still dying every week. Um, Fifteen thousand people, roughly, have been killed in this war so far. Uh, obviously, there's another escalation uh, with that would most likely come with Russia sending troops across the Russian-Ukrainian border or God forbid, even the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, uh, you would obviously see that climb. Um, so there's a, there's a huge human toll to this frozen frozen conflict. Absolutely. It's very likely the situation is all about just wearing the Ukrainian people down, uh, wearing down Ukrainian morale, capacity to rejoin NATO, to, not to rejoin, to join NATO. Right. But if, you, if, you're, if you're a Ukrainian, you're... you're sitting here thinking 
geez, it's it's been seven years. When is this going to end? And the answer is, I mean, Ru Russia has the capacity to freeze this right. for however long they wish, and hopefully, you know, a year from now, this is a blip on the map of a conflict that just continues and continues and continues. But still, we should acknowledge the costs of a conflict that continues and continues and continues. Uh, a cost, yeah, well, the costs of a conflict that continues and continues and continues and continues are never good. Uh, it, you can, I think there's some, there's some statistic that uh, I think like, I don't know how many kids in Donbass are out of school uh, perpetually because of this. So you can imagine there's an educational deficit that exists in that part of Ukraine now uh, from kids who just haven't gotten an education in seven years. Uh, there's over a million displaced people in Ukraine. A million and a half. So, you know, uh, and then, so then obviously you think about a million and a half, how many of those people are children? Okay. Well, are they, you know, are they getting school? Are they, are they well fed? Uh, you know, the, the, this is one of the human, you know, the real human tragedy of, of, of warfare uh, is that, uh, you know, civilians will be, will be paying the price. There was actually just recently a civilian who was killed. It was unclear uh, if it was... There were conflicting, obviously, conflicting reports about who did it. So that's another aspect here, too. The information war is coming back uh, in full swing like it was seven years earlier. Again, not a good sign. <laughs> um, uh, there were several Ukrainian soldiers who were killed. And the real tragedy there is, of course, they, those are lost lives. And they had friends and family back home uh, who were probably hoping to see them return at some point. Uh, and they will not be. Um, there were several reports also of Russian separatists being killed about a week ago. Uh, obviously the same story there. Uh, you know, th this is, and you can kind of see too how these deaths play into the emotionality of the conflict uh, in that it makes conflict resolution just, e even with ethnic divisions uh, or geopolitical divisions, uh, it just makes, it just makes ending a conflict that much more difficult because people have lost family members to this, friends to this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, neighbors to this. Uh, and it, it, it's emotional. And in a way also, you know, all else fails, uh, that emotionality on the ground between the warring factions uh, keeps, keeps the conflict going for sure. Uh, even, even longer than it would, you would usually expect a conflict to keep going. And I think this is definitely one of those cases. Absolutely. Russia has no incentive to end the conflict. And Ukraine, as the victim of international aggression, doesn't wish to seek peace on Russia's terms. So the answer is just it continues. And unless you have anything to add, I think that is another dark depressing episode of the Eurasia Center want cast uh, I guess the only thing I would add here uh, I mean this is this is an area that Timothy Snyder historian Timothy Snyder calls the bloodlands 
because uh, World War One on the Eastern Front was impartially fought here. Obviously, World War Two on the Eastern Front as well. Uh, millions died in both cases, and I guess the only uh, the only thing I have to add here is that I think it's just tragic that this part of the world has to go through this type of any warfare, uh, really, uh, again. Um, it just seems like the people of Eastern Europe uh, deserve better. Well said. Well. On that note. Yeah, I'll, you, you, you do it. I'll let you take away the, uh, the closer on the episode. Uh, well, on that note, this has been the Eurasia Center Wonkast. Uh, as always, I am Nicholas Klein, and my co-host, or I guess I, I guess I should say I'm the co-host and the host, Casey Chambers. Casey, uh, anything yep. you want to add before we officially sign off here? I, I think we've said all that needs to be said. All right, and with that, we will see you next time on the Eurasia Center Wonkast. Thank you all. Bye.